That was so good. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you all so much for hanging out with us this morning. Uh, man, if you're, if you're new, there should be some connect cards on the chairs. Fill one out. We'd love to, to hang out with you. But in addition to that, if you're new, just so grateful to have you here with us this morning. Um, man, that was such a wonderful and beautiful story of God's grace and Kathy's life. So we got to see uh, what repentance looked like. I think she said it so well where she said, man, there was this one direction that I was heading and through the Holy Spirit, there was a new heart and a new mind and a new direction. And uh, that's not only a result of uh, regeneration and repentance, it's also a result of the initial step of transformation, and I think that is wonderful. So to talk a little bit more about this before we dive into our time, I hope the stand doesn't break, Uh, to to talk a little bit more about that before we dive into our time. In fact, if you have a Bible with you, whether it's on your phone or or a hard copy, go ahead and go to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 13 to 16 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. While you're turning there, I'll ramble a little bit about that. One, again, that was a wonderful and powerful testimony. But in addition to that, one of the things that we're going to be beta testing, walking through, working on, is this stories ministry. Uh, Our production director, Everett, has been working on these uh, for the past couple of weeks. Yeah, he's doing a great job. In in addition to that, one of the things that we're doing is we are uh, aligning these stories with our time in 1 Peter. And so Kathy's was a wonderful story of redemption and and transformation, right? The gospel isn't just good advice, it's good news. And and she got to share a little bit about that. But as we move forward in our time in 1 Peter, there will be other themes and topics that we're going to address. Certainly redemption is a part of them, but there will be other bigger themes within that story. And so, man, if you would like to help, this isn't, so here's what we have so far. We already have people lined up for the next couple of videos. Uh, But if you would like to serve or help in this area of creativity, if you're like, man, I can help set up, I can help edit, I can help with direction, I can help with B-roll and shots, uh, man, talk to Everett after service uh, because these are some pretty big projects and he spends quite a considerable amount of time on these videos. And right now it's a, it's a one-man show and, and from time to time he gets some help. Obviously Kathy helps him with that. But in addition to that, that's something you might be interested in or you want to learn a little bit more information about what would it look like to potentially be on this story crew. Talk to Everett in the back. He'll give you all the information and his needs. Uh, other than that, let's, let's kind of dive, uh, dive into our time. So three weeks ago, we started a new sermon series titled uh, Exiles, a study in First Peter. And so it's kind of crazy to think that this is sermon number four. And so what I'd like to do is kind of give you this brief recap of, uh, of, of what has happened so far, especially if you are new. And so when I say something like, man, Peter has walked us slowly and he's been very patient with us, it feels very slow because we've been doing this chunks at a time. Obviously, if you read through 1 Peter, it won't necessarily feel like he's taking his time, but he is being patient with a couple of things. And so in weeks one through three, we looked at verses one through 12 and Peter's uh, big encouragement to these Christians who are Uh, on the verge of facing persecution. Some of them are already facing rejection from their community and from their families. 
Peter's giant encouragement is uh, he is grounding them or reminding them to be grounded in their identity that is in Christ. See, verses 1 through 12, Peter spends a considerable amount of time reminding them of who they are in Christ through a variety of angles. And so when we looked at week one, we looked at Peter addressing these Christians as elect exiles. That he was actually encouraging them by saying, not only have you been chosen by God, but you have been chosen by God since before the foundations of the world. In addition to that, he refers to them as exiles. Again, encouraging them, telling them that, hey, uh, you're in exile, which means this, this time, this earth is not your permanent home. That you actually, as God's chosen people, have a heavenly citizenship right now. And so he addresses them as elect exiles. He even goes in to talk about the unity of the triune God in verse 2. He goes on to explain the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he tells them, this is who you are right now, speaking to them in the present. And then in week 2, we look at Peter once again encouraging them with what God has done for them and what God is doing in them and the hope that awaits them in their inheritance. In other words, the hope that awaits us. And so he begins verse 3 by saying, "Blessed be the God, uh, blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his mercy you have been born again into a living hope." So he reminds them, "God has done a work not just in you but for you. He has made your heart new, and as a result of that, as a result of making your heart new, you have been born into a living hope, a hope that is centered around the person and work of Jesus, a hope that is certain, a hope that uh, has assurance. And he goes on to this, goes on to say, as a result of that, I'm going to challenge you to look to the future. Look to the future because you have an inheritance that's actually waiting for you in heaven right now that's being guarded by God through faith for you right now. He goes on to say that your inheritance, this inheritance is undefiled. It is uncorruptible, that it, is un, uh, that it doesn't perish. And so he sets their eyes on what is to come, the future of this inheritance, that it is a reality that they have right now as God's people. It is a reality that you, should you belong to Jesus, you have right now. And then last week, Peter goes and pulls back from the Old Testament. He goes on to tell us that, hey, this salvation is not random. This salvation has actually come through the work of the prophets who were messengers chosen by God to preach repentance to the people of God, and on top of that, prophesy of the coming Messiah, prophesy about the coming of Jesus. And Peter is saying, man, you are uh, soaking in that, that Christ has come, he has gone to the cross, that he has lived uh, in our place, that he has died uh, for our sins, that he has extended a grace that we cannot earn, and as a result of that, this salvation that you have been gifted is not random. In fact, God's pursuit of you through the Holy Spirit has been from the beginning, uh, from the, before the foundations of the world. He has been after you. 
And so verses 1 through 12 is this giant encouragement to these Christians. And he spends a significant amount of time uh, reminding them of who they are in Christ, the work of God for them, in them, and through them. Because today there is this, uh, uh, oh, I guess you would call it a linchpin. There's this word, uh, and it says, therefore, in verse 13, he is now switching gears. He needs them to know. He needs them to be reminded. He needs them to be uh, grounded. He needs them to be rooted in who they are if they're going to understand what they do. And so he writes, therefore. Therefore implies uh, a couple of things. It implies that he is coming to a conclusion from his argument or his encouragement, but it also implies that he is coming to a result. In other words, uh, as a result of who you are in Christ— this is what you should be doing. So he's bringing it home, even though we still have several more chapters, but he's bringing it home in terms of this argument. And so what I'd like to do, I'd like to read the verses, and then I'd like to pray, and, uh, and then I want to start with a couple of questions. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll see where we go from there. Here we go. This is 1 Peter chapter 1 verses uh, 13 through 16. Here we go. Peter writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time where we have this wonderful opportunity to worship you in song, in prayer, and and through the preached word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict us this morning with the power of your word. I pray that you would convict us by exposing us. I pray that you would challenge, challenge us by forcing us to look at the condition of our hearts. And I pray that you would compel us to step out in faith for the sake of transformation, all while leaning on your understanding and not our own. God, I pray that I would be set aside and that you would ultimately be glorified in this time. And Holy Spirit, that it would ultimately be you at work through me and in, at work in the hearts, minds of uh, my brothers and sisters and friends who are gathered here this morning. God, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. You guys ready? Here we go. Let's open up with a couple of questions, okay? And actually, before I get to those questions, here's something that that I want to do. I want to approach this text a little differently. Uh, I don't normally do this. I remember a few times Nathaniel and I have talked about when it's come to sermon prep. I I love going verses like in order. And so what we're going to do today is actually we're actually going to go backwards. And the reason I want to go backwards is because I think when you hear the word holy, or when many people hear the word holy, they get a little uh, nervous because a lot of people have different thoughts about what holiness is and how that applies to them or whether or not it even applies to them at all. And so what I'd like to do is actually work backwards. And so uh, we're going to go from 16 to, what is it, 15, 14, and, and, and then 13. I want us to actually look at 
three things. I want us to look at the meaning of holiness. I want us to look at the motivation of holiness. And finally, I want us to look at the means of holiness. And all of this is uh, on some of the notes that are online, but we're going to be walking through this. So now that you know, you're not confused, here are a couple of questions. Okay. Now, here's another preface. Man, I'm just holding on, like just keeping you in suspense. Um, here's another, another preface. The questions that I'm going to ask you aren't necessarily for you to discuss in group, though you can. I'm not saying you can't, right? I mean, do whatever you want. You can, you can ask these questions in group. You could obviously have discussion about these questions. Primarily, however, these questions are for you, the individual. They're for you to reflect on, and I hope for you to uh, ask some further difficult questions. Here we go. Here's the first question. What is your view of holiness? And you could think about that. Maybe some of you are, are taking notes. That's cool too. What is your view of holiness? What do you think about when considering holiness? What do you think about when you consider holiness? Here's a third one also wrapped in these same ones. A lot of these overlap or all three of these overlap. What do you think holiness is rooted in? It's actually kind of, I thought about that one this morning. What do you think holiness is rooted in? We're going to look at five things. These aren't the only five things that maybe some of you struggle with, right? But we're going to walk through five things nevertheless. Perhaps for you, holiness is rooted in, in academia. Maybe you're like me where uh, when asked the question, what do you think holiness is rooted in? You immediately want to find the correct answer. You immediately want to look for the perfect answer. You immediately look for the right answer. You want to look through uh, your Bible reading plan and your study Bibles. You want to look on concordance. Maybe some of you have the Logos Bible software, and so you want to unpack what holiness means. Maybe holiness for you is rooted in academia. Perhaps holiness is rooted in performance. It's rooted in performance. It is the goal of achieving a standard of moral perfection. Completing the tasks so that you can ultimately say, I've done it all the right way, rather than hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going slow on purpose because I want this to like sink. Maybe holiness for you is rooted in self-righteousness. The term holiness is really just an inside church and biblical term for something that you wouldn't necessarily say out loud. Holiness just means better than you. Perhaps those who don't know the Lord or those who are growing in their maturity are lepers to you. And so holiness is not only rooted in self-righteousness, but it's rooted in cynicism and arrogance. Maybe holiness for you is rooted in intimidation and discouragement. Holiness is, when I think of the word, something that is so beautiful, something that is completely and utterly perfect that I cannot fathom ever being that or achieving that. And as a result of that, it is 
so intimidating that God would even tell me to be holy. And because it's intimidating, it is utterly discouraging. And because it is utterly discouraging, perhaps you want to quit. Just forget holiness. I got Jesus. Take the wheel. Dumb. Perhaps holiness is rooted in fear. That if you don't achieve holiness, you will be punished. You will be removed. You will be rejected. Some of you have that fear. Some of you place that fear in others. So those are five ways that maybe you might think of holiness. And, and the thing about it is, you might look at those five things and, well, I wouldn't necessarily articulate it that way. You may not articulate it that way. You actually might articulate it and say it a completely different way. That doesn't mean that uh, you don't struggle with one of those. And so then we come to the question, so then what is biblical holiness? Well, we need to talk about, again, the meaning of holiness. What is Biblical holiness. The Bible teaches us that God is holy. That is, that God is different, that he is set apart, that he is infinite, that he is righteous, that he is undefiled, that he's incorrupt, incorruptible, that he is excellent, but in particular, that he is transcendent, that is superior, above all, man, outside of our game, outside of what we could ever achieve. But it also means that he is personal and that he is pure, without sin, without blemish, that he is perfect. Holiness is not just something God does, but it is rooted in who God is. And now you might hear that and you're like, oh, okay, that doesn't help. I'm still intimidated and discouraged. I don't know if I could ever do that. And the truth is that, yeah, that view is incredibly intimidating to us because we can never fully be any of those things. That our hearts are still corrupted by the presence of sin. That we, in reality, still fall. We still struggle with sin. Some of you are battling sin daily and failing constantly. I get it. And in a nutshell, you just want to say, I'm not God. I can't do that. Yet, he commands us to be holy. So we need to look at two realities. I don't think these are on the notes. But we need to look at, or maybe they are, I don't know. We need to look at two realities. And we're looking at these two realities so that we would come to a common ground and a common understanding of what holiness is and how that applies to the Christian. And so the first thing that we just need to come to is that apart from God, apart from God in Christ, we can never be holy. R.C. Sproul says it this way, that it is our impurity, it is our sin, our corruption, our moral corruption that keeps us from knowing and seeing God. He goes on to say that the problem actually is not our eyes, the problem is the condition of our hearts. However, that's one reality, however, The command to holiness, the command to holiness is rooted in the grace 
of God's mercy toward sinners, of which we are completely. Holiness is rooted in the grace of God's mercy toward sinners. That is what Peter just finished walking us through. He went on to say that the father elects and that he pursues his children, that the son was sent and sacrificed, that the Holy Spirit renews and seals, that the command to be holy is to be a reflection of who God is to one another and to those who don't know him. Peter says it really well. Be holy in all your conduct. In other words, if the meaning of holiness is that God has set you apart, which is what it means, that you have been set apart by God, if the meaning of holiness is that God has set you apart, then holiness is rooted in grace. Holiness is rooted in undeserving favor from God toward sinners. It begins with God's work for you. We, we looked at this in week two with regeneration, that our hearts are actually at war. Who we are, we are at war with God if we do not know him. And we actually need a new heart if we are going to not only have relationship with God, but if we're going to be at peace with God. And so our hearts need to be made new. It is what Jesus says in John 3, that you ought to be born again. And so it begins with God's work for you and his work in you. The fancy word is sanctification. Sanctification is God at work in you throughout your life, as Kathy said, chipping away at what doesn't need to be there. Chipping away so that you would become more like Jesus. She said it so well. Holiness is an invitation to wholeness. It is an invitation to wholeness. That is, in God's mercy, he takes a sinner and all that is fragmented, all that is distorted, and makes you whole so that you would reflect his holiness and his glory. The command to be holy. The command to be holy is a command to, to exist as a result of who you are in Christ. The word be, when he says you are to be holy, means to exist as. In fact, When we look at verses 1 through 12 and come up to, so he's telling us about who we are in Christ. He's telling us about our identity. And then he starts in verse 13. He says, therefore, if we take out all of verse 13, all of verse 14, all of verse 15, he gives us the result. He says, this is who you are in Christ right now in the present. This is what God is doing for you. This is the inheritance that you're going to have. This is the mission that God has been on to call you to himself. Therefore, we were Remove those verses. It says, therefore, be holy. It is a result of who you are. It is a result of who you are 
and reflecting the character of God, the holiness of God, the glory of God in all your conduct. We're going to look at that in just a little bit. That's practical stuff. Because I know some of you might be like, tell me what to do. We'll get there later. (laughs) Okay? We'll get there later. It's actually at this point I need to switch to my written stuff because my iPad isn't working. And so, as a result, the command to be holy is a command to exist, excuse me, is a command to exist as a result of who you are in Christ. So let's let's now look at the motivation of holiness. Oh, I still have it. Let's look at the motivation of holiness. Hope this doesn't fall. Peter provides us with the motivation behind holiness with a positive and a negative. Let's go back briefly to those verses since we're going backwards. This is verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He provides the motivation behind holiness with a positive and a negative. And so let's look at the positive first. The positive is that Peter addresses Christians as children of God. He addresses Christians as children of God. You see, holiness is not a badge that you earn, but it is a status given to you on behalf of the work, righteousness, and obedience of another. And he addresses us, he addresses Christians as children of God. Because we are God's children, we obey. Obedience, then, is a result of sonship. It's not a means to it. Obedience is a demonstration of our faith. It's a demonstration that we know that God loves us. In fact, we are, because we are loved, we obey. It is not the other way around. It is not that we obey so that we are loved. That's not what Peter says. Peter says, as obedient children. Look at Proverbs 17, verse 6. It's the second half of the verse. I love this verse. Dads, I would encourage you to memorize this. The glory of children is their father's. The glory of children is their father's. Some of you didn't have a heavenly father, excuse me, an earthly father. Some of you had an earthly father, but you did a poor job, whether it's through neglect or abuse or being physically present but emotionally absent. I'm very sorry. Some of you have an earthly father doing his best, Trying to, trying to do it while, while loving Jesus, yet fails regularly because of his own sin. I hope that's the kind of dad 
I, I would fall in that category. That I would try to champion my son as he is looking to Jesus. That I would actually encourage him more as a result of who he is in Christ rather than the work I have for him. Because that's actually where I repeatedly fail with my son. Children are the glory of their fathers. When Peter writes as obedient children, that's a title, that's a status that means you have a heavenly father who will not reject you, who does not fail you, who constantly pursues you, who is constantly preaching repentance to you to turn to him because his ways are good. He is the the ultimate and heavenly father who comes alongside of you to champion you, to encourage you, to exhort you and discipline you when you need it as well. But he does not leave because all of it is motivated by holiness. You might say, well, it's motivated by love. Yeah, everything God does is holy. His love is holy. As obedient children, that's who you are. If you're a Christian, that is who you are. And you have a heavenly Father who loves you, who's pursuing you. So know that it is because you are loved that we obey. Here's the negative. Peter goes on to say that because we belong to God, we actually uh, don't conform to who we used to be or what we used to do. In fact, we have been transformed according to his mercy and his work. If I go back up to the top, he says, as obedient children, that's who we are now, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Here's what he's saying. He says, don't default to who you used to be and what you used to do. Christians will do this all of the time. I'd like to park here for for just a moment. In fact, before I park there, listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That the Christian life is actually not about conformity, it is about transformation. And way too many times, way too many times, Christians default to who they used to be and what they used to do for a variety of excuses, not reasons. Perhaps Christians default because, or perhaps, let me make it personal, perhaps you default to who you used to be, what you used to do, out of comfort. Man, you know that life? I didn't have the kind of problems and stress that I have now. And so you rather go back to that way of life, whatever it was, for the sake of comfort. Or perhaps you default to who you used to be and what you used to do as a result of an escape. Things that are going on, things that are in my heart, things that are a part of, that I'm a part of, are difficult, they're stressful, I don't like them, they're challenging me, I'm having to step outside of my comfort zone. It is too much. And so, i rather go and indulge in this escape. 
I don't know what your escape is. Perhaps it's porn. Maybe it's uh, drinking or drugs. Whatever your escape is, is that reason. But here's the big, like, the climax of that. When we default to who we were and what we used to do, what we are doing, what we are saying is that we really have a propensity and an actual desire for volunteer slavery. That when we turn to our former ways and our ignorance ways, what we are saying is, I actually like the shackles. And it doesn't only apply to these physical comforts or escapes drugs, alcohol, porn, whatever. It also applies to internal comforts and escapes. That you rather be comforted and led by power or greed or anger or bitterness or pride. That you actually prefer being in the shackles of those sins. That your heart's desire is actually to be chained up again. That is what we communicate when we default to who we were and what we used to do. That is in direct contrast of being obedient children. They get it. (laughs) Make note of that. That when it gets difficult, when temptation is really loud when your heart's desires just feel so good, right? As you put that on social media. Really what you're saying, really what you're desiring is to go back and being shackled. It would be like the story of the Exodus with the Israelites, that God redeems them and brings them out of slavery. And when things got hard, what did they say? you know what? Slavery wasn't so bad, actually. Man, do you remember the good old days of being in Egypt when we were whipped? We laugh because we don't have to go back to Egypt. We laugh because we haven't experienced that. We laughed because we're not having to put all these pounds of brick on our back so that we could build all sorts of things. But whatever your Egypt is, is what you're saying, I'd rather be a slave to that. The result of holiness as God's children is godliness. The result of holiness as God's children is godliness. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5. Verse 22, some of you may even have this memorized. He writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you're taking notes, or if you have like a Bible app, I want you to underline or circle the word fruit. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We will read the fruit of the Spirit, and as a way of escape or excuse, we will say, no, that's really good. I like it. I like what Paul is saying. I'm good at kindness. I just, uh, you know, I'm just not the most peaceful person. I get what he's saying. I love gentleness. I think I could be gentle, but self-control? I don't know about that. I struggle with that, so I'm just not going to, I'm not going to focus on the squeaky wheel. I'm actually just going to focus on my strengths, right? But I want you to look at the word fruit. It's singular. It's not plural. Oh man, he hooked you. It's like gotcha, right? You know? But the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, in this weird analogy that my, my, my son and I were talking about this a couple weeks ago, in this weird analogy, what Paul is saying is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, that's actually one apple. That is one apple. It's not grapes. It is one apple so that none of us would have the excuse and some of you ride that wave of excuse. Man, I, I get love, I'm just not very joyful. I get peace, I'm just not very gentle. Paul lays it all out on the table and says, this one piece of fruit is what all of you ought to be striving for. You may struggle in varying degrees of it, and so you need one another so that you would grow up into these things. But he strings them all together so that no one would have an excuse. In other words, when he says that the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit is joy, you cannot fully comprehend what joy is if you do not know what love is. You cannot fully comprehend kindness if you don't understand patience. You cannot fully understand self-control unless you know love. Paul strings them all together so that none of us would have an excuse. So stop riding your wave of excuses. Stop riding your wave of excuses. Man, drop them and submit them before the Lord. Turn away from them and let's apply our minds and action to the fruit of the Spirit. So as a result, let's look at the means of holiness. This is verse 13. This is verse 13. Let me reread that. This is what Paul says. Therefore, we talked about that already. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the practical. And it's not really one of those practical where you're like, all right, let's do it. What do I need to do? It's still going to be hard. And I'll tell you why. Because he deals specifically with our minds. Uh, Peter, not Paul. Peter gives us three things. The means to holiness includes three things in this section. I'll walk you through them and then I'll explain them. Preparing our minds for action, that is one. Number two, being sober-minded. And number three, setting our hope on grace. Now let's walk through each one of those. 
When Peter writes to prepare our minds for action, I actually dig the King James Version translation of that verse. I like that one more than what Paul said or Peter says. The King James translation reads, gird up your loins of your mind. You can check it if you don't believe me. Gird up the loins of your mind. It's not just a biblical thing, but it's historical, right? Dudes wore long robes. And when it came to fighting, when it came to battle, when it came to working, they needed to raise their robe, not a skirt. They had to raise their robe, tie it so that they would have a wider base, so that they can run, so that they can get to work, so that if they needed to defend themselves, they could. Because in a robe or a skirt, obviously you are limited with space. Gird up the loins meant, man, hike your robe up, bro, and tie it up. Okay? If you don't believe me, even in the ESV, which is what we preach out of, you can go to 1 Kings 18. I think it's verse 46 says it. So, yeah, it's biblical. Okay? Gird up the loins of your mind. Here's, here's what Peter is saying in this section, in, in, in that first part of verse 13. What Peter is saying is, get your head on straight. That's what Peter's saying. Get your head on straight and get ready to roll up your sleeves to get to work. That's what, he's, what he says. Man, prepare your minds for action. And when he says, uh, gird up the loins of your mind, he is saying, get your head on straight, roll up your sleeves, and let's get ready to work. That if we're going to be motivated as obedient children, that if we're going to pursue holiness as a result of who we are, you need to be ready. You need to be ready. Holiness is both a call to think and act, but it begins with the mind. It begins with the mind because you will very or should very quickly learn that when you gird up the loins of your mind, you should be faced with a mirror. And that mirror is going to expose the condition of your heart. You cannot move forward if you do not understand the condition of your heart, which means girding up the loins of our minds not only means being ready, but repentant. Not only being ready, but repentant. The second thing Peter says is be sober-minded. In 1 Peter, he uses this phrase, this term, sober-minded, three times. And it implies what we're going to talk about. Being sober-minded implies to not be drunk. It's kind of easy, right? To not be drunk. However, Peter isn't just addressing alcohol. Peter is saying... Prepare your mind for action and be sober-minded. In other words, don't be drunk on anything that clouds your judgment. It's not just alcohol. It could be comfort. It could be anger. It could be bitterness. It could be pride. 
It could be man, porn. It could be uh, man, self-deception. It could be all of these things. He's saying, don't be drunk on those things because they cloud your judgment. And if your judgment is clouded, he says that you're actually being mastered by something else. Something else is ruling the, something else is ruling your heart, and it is not Christ. And so you're not ready, and you're not sober-minded. Some of you are there. Some of you really want to hold fast to only external things. I haven't drunk any kind of alcohol, and uh, you know it's all about duels anyway. And I haven't. Uh, uh, man, I haven't done any kind of drugs and I haven't done all these other things. Man, but the condition of your heart is so hardened and distant from God that it is clouding your judgment to move forward. Therefore, you cannot set your hope on the grace of Christ. Being sober-minded also means this, that when we are sober-minded, we are actually led to lament over sin's destruction. Being sober-minded means having a clear head. It means uh, not having clouded judgment and actually seeing what is before you. That sin actually, in particular your sin, leads you to lament. And I think the reason we do not lament, in particular the, 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 the American church, but I think if we're going to just talk about us, I think the reason that we don't lament over sin, in particular our sin, is because we don't take sin seriously. We don't take sin seriously, which means you don't take the person and work of Jesus seriously. And salvation is nothing but fire insurance to you. Salvation is something that is nothing but convenience to you. And so you are not sober-minded and you are not ready for action. Which means you are operating in your own understanding and in your own desire and you are not looking to the person of Christ. Additionally, sober-minded also means to be disciplined. It means to be disciplined. Disciplined in what? Specifically, the Word of God. I don't just want you to be a Jesus-loving, Jesus-following Christian. I want you to be a Bible-reading Christian. Man, I want you to run to the Word of God with desperation to learn more about God, to learn more about you, to repent of your sin, so that you would worship God, including the boring days like Tuesdays. That you're not always going to be met with this like special revelation like, oh, my sin. Oh, maybe you will. But there are also going to be those regular days where you are just sitting and marinating and thinking over the implication of the gospel in your life. That God uh, came into human history as the man, Jesus Christ, lived in my place, died in my place on the cross, uh, and extends the grace that I cannot deserve. That he not only forgave my sin, but that he also took on the wrath of God. That the, the, the mercy of God, the mercy and grace of God has saved me from the wrath of God. I want us to be Christians who take sin seriously because it devastates us. 
It means that the evil one, it means that Satan is racking up all of these wins and we're okay with it. I want us to be Christians who love God's Word, who love Jesus, who are passionate about the Holy Spirit and what He is doing in us because we do not want to be conformed Christians. We want to be transformed Christians. And if we're going to be transformed Christians, our minds need to be prepared for action and we need to be sober-minded so that, number three, we would fully set our hope, set our hope on the grace of Jesus. He said this in, in verse 3. According to his mercy, you have been born again to a living hope, certainty, unsur- assurance. That while your circumstances may not necessarily change, the hope of the gospel is that Jesus, through the Spirit, changes your heart, he changes your mind. Because now you are set on the return of Christ for his church. And so you can set your hopes, you can set your mind on the hope of grace and grace of Jesus. You can do this. You can do this. Some of you will hear about holiness and be like, man, I don't know, I just got Jesus. No, you can do this. I'm telling you, as your brother, as your friend, as your pastor, you can do this. Some of you don't know who Jesus is. And throughout Scripture, He is constantly inviting you to come to Him. He says it over and over, come to me. Come to me. That He is ready to receive all who are repentant of their sin. That's not, that's not a hoop to jump through. That is a change of direction. You can come to know Jesus and have a blessed, assurant hope in his grace. Those of you who are Christian, in a moment we're going to pray, in a moment we're going to go into communion, don't waste this time. Stop treating it like it's just the next part of the service. Ask yourself the really hard question that if I'm not pursuing holiness, what is it that I'm pursuing? Ask one another that question. Am I pursuing holiness? Ask the difficult question, Lord, where is the condition of my heart at? Repent of your sin. Turn away from your sin. Stop allowing Satan to rack up winds and turn and set your hope on the grace of God. Because you are his children, you have been made new. A work has been and is being done in you. That's why I can tell you with confidence, you can do this. Let's pray. God, holiness is, uh, holiness can be very intimidating. 
But God, I pray that through Peter, we would actually leave here encouraged. That we would leave here encouraged because you address us as your children, which means you are our father. Which means you are pursuing us. It means that we're in a relationship with you. It means that you love us and you want good for us like a good father does. And so God, as we come to this closing time in in the the preached word, God, may we reflect on uh, what you have revealed to us, Holy Spirit. May we reflect on, man, even the struggles that we're experiencing right now. And may we actually act upon them, that we would repent of our sin, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus and the promises of his word. That, that sin, that we would o- literally lament over sin. And that we would just be passionate about the supremacy of Christ. God, as we walk into a time of tithes and offering, this is uh, a, a section of our worship where we not only continue to worship you, but we worship you with something tangible, a demonstration of your work in us where we are actually relinquishing, letting go of what we think uh, we deserve and is ours. That ultimately, these finances, this money is yours. And so God, would you lead us to give uh, with humility and generosity? Would you lead us to give uh, openly and faithfully? And as a result, remind us of, uh, man, of, of your grace, of your grace in our lives. God, I pray for these finances that we would be good stewards of them as we walk in, not just to the rest of the year, but as we walk toward the future in our church. God, we love you. We thank you for this time in worship. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
That was good. All right, guys, those of you who are serving communion, go ahead and get ready. Come forward when, 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 when you're ready. Uh, everyone else, I would invite you to, to join me in prayer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray a little bit. I'm going to read some scripture, and we'll, we'll keep going. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open by reading some scripture. This is uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse, verse 12. Now, read this a little slow. I know I speak fast sometimes, but uh, I'll read this a little slow. And man, let us, let us just kind of sit in verse 12 for a while, okay? The writer of Hebrews, uh, this is what he says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God, in this time, this is where we give you our sin. This is where we give you our sin. And God, I pray, I pray that your word would pierce through our hearts. That it would pierce through the very marrow of our bones so that we would discern and also the intentions of our heart would be exposed. God, I pray that we are a church that is a people who take sin seriously. That not only have we been saved from hell and eternal punishment and eternal separation, but that we have been saved from the wrath of God, that at one point the wrath of God was over us, and through the person and work of Jesus, we have been saved, and that wrath has been satisfied by Him on the cross on our behalf. Holy Spirit, would you literally boil to the surface anything that needs to be exposed so that we would repent of it, so that we would address it, and so that we would grow in our maturity of who you have called us to be in Christ. This time is specifically reserved for the believer. And so, if you were not a Christian, we would ask that you would actually stay in your seat. No one's going to say anything or look at you weird. But you could also come to know Jesus right now, in your seat. I'd love to hear about it. love to hear what you're wrestling with. And if you are a Christian... Please, please, please do not approach the Lord's Supper with an impenitent heart. That is, a heart that is not repentant. Scripture teaches that when we do that, we actually bring judgment and blood upon our hands. And so Christian, do not waste this time. 
Do not waste this time. In fact, enjoy this fellowship in the grace of God and all that he says. When you're ready, you can come forward.